Hi, you're listening to the Professional's Playbook. I'm Justin Lee, a current F-35 fighter pilot for the U.S. Air Force. My guest today is Vincent Jello Aiello. He's a Navy fighter pilot and host of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Before we get to a highlight, if you're enjoying what you're listening to, you can help out by reviewing it, subscribing to it, and then sharing it on social media. All right, here's a brief highlight from our interview today. And he did this pea shiver and just kind of made this sound like, whew. And he, he kind of looked around and I happened to make eye contact with him and he said, man, it's dark out there. And in that moment, I realized this will never get easier. <laughs> this really sucks because it was hard for me as a new guy and it was almost as hard. It did get slightly easier, but no matter how many traps I ended up having, which to your point, yes, it was a little over 700, over 260 of those at night. It really did not ever get easier. And when the weather was bad or the moon was down or God forbid the ship was pitching due to rough seas, then it got even harder and it puts gray hair on your head in a hurry because it's just you want to do well and you want to succeed, but you also want to live. And certainly YouTube is full of videos of where landings went wrong and it's it's real. Jello spent nearly 25 years in service flying mainly the F-18 Hornet and Super Hornet, but also flew the F-16 Fighting Falcon during an adversary tour. He accrued over 3,800 flight hours and 705 carrier landings, having served as a Top Gun instructor and an air wing operations officer. He left the Navy in 2017 and now flies for a major airline. He is also the founder and host of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Now without further ado, Jello Aiello. So Jello, what's going on? Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Justin. It's good to be here. So I know you've done a lot of awesome things in your 25 plus years as a naval officer. Can you go over the big picture flow of your career and hit some of the highlights? You bet. I knew at an early age I wanted to be a pilot, so I figured out how to get there. One method was the academies, and I was not accepted to the Naval Academy. So another alternative method that served me well was the ROTC or Reserve Officer Training Corps, which I was able to participate in at UCLA. And working hard there, I was able to select pilot training as my warfare specialty. And in pilot training with continued hard work, I selected jets, and then ultimately the F-18. And then I spent about 25 years in the Navy as an F-18 pilot, and even had a chance at the end to fly the F-16. And it was just a rewarding career, a lot of fun, some time away from home as well, over five different deployments, mostly on aircraft carriers. And I don't regret a bit of it. I had a really great time and so did my family, actually. So my brother is actually a brand new pilot to the Super Hornet. He just finished his first cruise. He's out in Iwakuni. Uh, what kind of advice would you have for a young naval aviator like him? Well, first off, I'd want to thank him for his service. I'm still always glad that there are people willing to do this. It is fun, but there is a bit of sacrifice as well. It took me a couple deployments before I realized that you don't have to get spooled up about everything. And I don't know if that's just a detriment of being young or being a fighter pilot, you expect to be in charge and in control of everything. And there's certain things that you cannot be. So my advice to your brother would be to sit back, look for the big picture, try to figure out what is missing in your information? Because there are times we think we know the whole story. And in fact, there's an element missing and you can spend a lot of frustration trying to figure out why don't I know what's happening here and, and why are they making decisions? They being that nebulous leadership, right? 
or the government or whomever. Why are they making these decisions? This is the stupidest thing ever. And maybe your brother's not half Italian like I am, but I stomped my feet a lot and and was vocal to a, to a fault at times about things that I thought were idiotic. And in the end, you realize as you get older and you settle down a little bit that nobody really has the full story. And if you knew what other people knew, you might have to make the same decisions, even though they might be unpopular with certain people. So I would say to sit back, take things in stride the best you can. And also that you need to remember a sense of perspective. So Justin, have you ever had a chance to visit an aircraft carrier? I have not. Looking forward to it, though. It's enormous. <laughs> they are as tall as the Empire State Building if you could stand one on its tail. They displace nearly 100,000 tons of water. They're four and a half acres of sovereign territory wherever they sail. They are absolutely enormous ships full of 5,000 plus people. Justin, that same ship, and I know you can appreciate this as a pilot, everything looks smaller at 25,000 feet. When you are over the middle of the ocean and you look down at that enormous ship, it looks tiny. And there's no better lesson in my mind in perspective than that, because what seems immense and insurmountable when you're boarding it with your sea bag looks tiny and almost impossible to land on at 25,000 feet. And I think there's a lot of parallels in life that things that seem enormous, if you can step back and try to gain the bigger picture, can look smaller. And that's not always a good thing either. Maybe things that look smaller when you really look closely can be bigger as necessary. And either way works depending on the analogy you want to draw it to or the parallel you want to make. But I would say to keep a sense of perspective that things that are big can also look small and vice versa. So talking about carriers, I know you have over 700 landings on a carrier, which is which is a ton. Can you describe what your cross-check is, what you're feeling, and what it's like to actually land on it? Certainly. Well, the first thing is, depending on the prevailing weather conditions, we have many different ways we can arrive at the aircraft carrier. One way, if it's perfectly clear, nice day and daytime only, is what we call the case one pattern, where if you imagine the ship at the three o'clock position on a clock, let's say, going straight up or north, as we would customarily think of it, well, all the aircraft are going to hold in a counterclockwise fashion over the rest of the face of the clock, going from three o'clock up to 12, over to nine, down to six, et cetera. And then vertically, you have aircraft at 2,000, 3,000, 4,000. I think 4,000 is the top of the stack. And what you have is a group of aviators who all know how to collapse, as it's called, the stack, so that there's someone at 2,000 feet whose job it is to, quote, break the deck, meaning when the aircraft carrier is done launching aircraft, the first section or division sometimes, or four ship in your case, to come down will try to time it so that as soon as the flight deck is ready to land aircraft, they are in a position to land. And everybody else follows in after that. So if the folks at 3,000 make their way down to 2,000, when the folks at 2,000 go down to land and everybody keeps track of the ones in front of them, then this whole thing can be done, believe it or not, Justin, completely calm free. In other words, nobody's talking to anyone. It all just happens. Now, there can be communications if it's needed. For example, the landing signal officers can make power calls to the pilots who need them, and the tower can certainly yell at someone if they need to. But otherwise, it can be done what we call calm out. Now, you take that same beautiful day and turn the lights out, and it's nighttime. Or if you take that day and add very low weather, 
Then you have what's called a case three pattern. And I'll quickly describe that if I can. Instead of holding overhead the ship in our previous example, now your, let's say that clock we imagined was on the wall. And let's say there's a picture below the clock about a foot or down the wall, a foot or two down the wall. Then we all hold somewhere down, maybe not directly due south, if you will, in that example of the ship. But somewhere from southeast to southwest, you'll be what's on what's called a Marshall stack. And every aircraft now will fly by itself and will have its own altitude. And so the first aircraft will generally be at, let's say, 6,000 feet. And then the next aircraft might be at 7,000 feet. And then you also hold at a distance behind the ship equal to your altitude plus 15. So the aircraft at 6,000 feet will be at 21 miles. The aircraft at 7,000 feet will be at 22 miles, etc. And then about once a minute, you make your way towards the ship when they tell you to push at a certain time, and you fly a particular pattern at a particular speed so that everybody knows what it is and arrives at the right place at the right time. And then you fly a straight-in approach to the ship instead of a circling approach like you do in the, in the daytime. And then, of course, if anyone in either of these situations does a wave off or a what we call a bolter where you miss all the wires, then you have to sequence yourself back in. In the daytime, you do that yourself without communications. At night, you do it with the help of the approach controllers. And then I know I've been talking a little while here. I'll try to conclude by telling you about the case two, Justin, which is a mix between the case one and case three. So daytime only, if the weather's bad but not awful, you can hold behind the ship like case three, but you can do it in two ship or section as we call it. And you still hold and push on time. But once you get below the weather, then the rest of it is like the case one where you come in and land on the ship. So that is how you arrive at and then land on the ship. It sounds like a well-oiled clock. Do you have tankers airborne in case somebody misses their approach and goes back into the uh, into the stack? Yes. You always have a tanker airborne, even if you're working what we call divert operations, meaning you have a good divert nearby. You'll just about always have at least one tanker, sometimes more, and we'll have more at night because generally it is harder to land at night. The actual landing itself, if you ever heard your brother talk about it, meat ball, line up, angle of attack. What that means is you are looking at the landing reference system on the ship. You are lining yourself correctly on the small area of the landing area of the ship. And then you're making sure your aircraft is in the proper attitude. That's the angle of attack part. And you do that all the way down until you land. And when you land, instead of going to idle and flaring, you go to full power in case you miss the wires or if a wire breaks, you have a little bit of extra power there as well. And that's pretty rare. But at any rate, once you touch down, you go to full power. And if you miss the wires, you're airborne again before you really even have a chance to think about it. And then you go around and try it again. And so when you're doing this at night, I've heard a lot of stories that it can be pretty nerve-wracking at night. Being an Air Force pilot, it's pretty easy landing on an 8,000-foot runway day or night. I've had some interesting encounters in Afghanistan, being 5,000 feet up, coming back with bombs, with tailwind, landing at night being a little bit sketchy, but it's definitely different landing on a small aircraft carrier. Can you talk about how the night affects the landing? Certainly. And if you don't mind, I'd like to take a moment to discuss the difference between Navy and Air Force pilots. And a lot of listeners on my show, which we can talk about later, always ask, are we better than the Air Force because we land on the ship? And I always say, no, we're just different. 
the time that we spend training to land on the ship, I presume you guys are spending on tactics. So I think we're just different and that's okay. All type A guys and women trying to uh, be the best pilots we can. Concur. So the night carrier landings are frankly terrifying. I don't think I ever got used to them. In fact, when I was a brand new pilot in my very first squadron, I remember distinctly my executive officer who probably was in his early 40s and he was the number two senior ranking person in the squadron. He came in from a night landing, set his helmet bag and helmet down on his ready room chair in our ready room. And he did this pea shiver and just kind of made this sound like, whew. And he, he kind of looked around and I happened to make eye contact with him. And he said, man, it's dark out there. And in that moment, I realized this will never get easier. <laughs> this really sucks because it was hard for me as a new guy. And it was almost as hard. It did get slightly easier. But no matter how many traps I ended up having, which to your point, yes, it was a little over 700, over 260 of those at night. It really did not ever get easier. And when the weather was bad or the moon was down or God forbid the ship was pitching due to rough seas, then it got even harder and it puts gray hair on your head in a hurry because it's just, you want to do well and you want to succeed, but you also want to live. And certainly YouTube is full of videos of where landings went wrong and it's, it's real. Is there anything that you kind of tell yourself in a high pressure situation like that for me? You know, tanking sounds somewhat similar during the day. It can be routine and not super tough. But, you know, when you're at night, low loom, you know, the weather is bad. The autopilot on the tanker is broken. So it's fucking around. Uh, I'll tell myself to wiggle my fingers and toes. Is there anything like that that, that you did? Well, and I think that's a great plan too, Justin, because in doing so, you have to release your death grip on the stick and rudders and, and remind yourself to trim the aircraft, which is always good. You want things to be in balance. And there's probably a good metaphor there between the aircraft we fly or you fly, I flew, and our lives in general. You need balance. You need good nutrition and exercise and plenty of water and balance spiritually and physically and emotionally and everything else. And for me, I try to just take deep breaths in the real time and remind myself that I can do this. So positive affirmation was important. I have done this and I can do this. Other people do it. I just need to do it. Now, does that make it any easier? Well, maybe not really. Again, when I was about to land on the carrier at night, it's hard work. I mean, there's no doubt about it and there's no way around it. It is difficult, but you tell yourself, I can do this. And I tell this to my children now. In fact, I prohibit the words I can't in my home. And of course they do it anyway. But whenever they say, I can't do this, I say, no, you're having difficulty doing this or you're getting better at doing this. There's all these different phrases you can say to yourself, and does it sound like happy talk? Probably, but there's truth to it. We believe what we hear. We believe what we're told. And that includes what we tell ourselves. So I would tell myself, you can do this. You may not do it pretty. You may not do it well, but you can do it. And that just helped me to relax a little bit and focus on what are the chores that I need to do? What are the tasks? What is the first thing I need to do? Okay. The first thing at night I need to do is plan my timing so I arrive at the correct spot at the correct time. And then once I've done that, that's a small victory. And that's reinforcement to me to say, see, you can do this. And I think, again, there are parallels here in regular life. Give yourself a small victory. Congratulate yourself, but don't get arrogant. And then look at what's coming next and prepare ahead and believe that you can do it. Yeah, I think the positive affirmations is great. I used to box when I was at the Air Force Academy. And 
we were near the Olympic training center. And so one day they brought in uh, some of the sports psychologists and they did positive affirmations. They introduced me to, to meditation. They did a whole bunch of stuff. And I think it was more, mostly sports specific, but I carried that through pilot training, carried that through uh, flying fighters, going to combat. And it's really, really served me well. Yes, I agree. So moving on to the landing seems terrifying, but taking off, being on the catapult seems seems awesome. Seems like a kick in the butt. Can you describe that? Oh, yes. That is a lot of fun. Everybody enjoys the catapults day or night. The only thing about the night catapults is, you know, it's followed by a night arrestment. So that's usually not uh, as enjoyable. But the procedures on the flight deck are well choreographed. You follow the directions of what we call the yellow shirts, which are enlisted personnel who direct us around the flight deck. We never taxi on our own. We're always under positive control of somebody. And they will set you up on the catapult. You go through the procedures to make sure your aircraft is ready. And if you've ever watched a video of it, you know there's lots of people around looking at your aircraft, also ensuring it's ready. And when the time comes, you go through a sequence of procedures such that the aircraft is powered to full power and the catapult is tensioned, as we call it. And at that time, you then salute the director to shoot you. And at night, you turn on your lights because they can't see your salute. And once you are head back, ready to go, you're along for the ride. There's nothing more you can do. You've set the trim for the aircraft so it will rotate to the correct attitude. And everything else after that is simply you're along for the ride. So it's a lot of fun. When you go off the catapult from zero, you get to 160 knots in about two seconds. And at that point, you move out uh I should say you you go off the flight deck and the aircraft rotates for you. You then put your hand on the controls for the first time, unlike the F-4, where you had to fly it down the whole catapult stroke. And at that time, you then take over and you're only 60 feet off the water at fairly close to stall speeds. So you need to get involved right away, but generally it goes well. And yeah, I've seen pictures of that where the pilot's hands are on the rail until after they uh, after they depart the carrier. What's What's the point of that? The point of that in an aircraft like the FA-18 that has digital fly-by-wire flight controls is that we don't want the man-in-the-loop pilot affecting anything artificially when there's a very brief period of time where the aircraft can do it for us. So as I just mentioned, the F-4 was not that way. The stick, I had, I believe, had to be held back to open some sort of bellow to allow air in and in the F-18, the computers are taking care of it. So we are taught from a young age, young relatively as pilots, to not have your hand on the stick because you don't want to induce any errors. You want to put it somewhere else. And the towel bar, as we call it on the canopy rail, is a convenient location to put it. And after a while, I got lazy. I just put it on my knee because it was closer anyway. But anywhere off the stick is where you want to be. Now, that's for your right hand. Your left hand, Justin, of course, is holding the throttle full forward because if it happens to go back due to inertia on the cat stroke, you're going to be in a world of trouble. And on the F-18, they don't have it anymore. But on earlier aircraft, they used to have a little bar that flipped up where your throttles were at military or maximum power. And you could actually hold on to that little bar to make sure your hand didn't accidentally come back either. But these days, you just kind of lock your arm out. and It's not a problem. But yeah, you're just along for the ride, essentially, on the F-18. Have you ever had a malfunction? I saw a YouTube video. This is probably from years and years ago of a cable snapping. And there's a, uh, we call them crew chiefs, the guys that are helping out the jet. And he was able to jump up 
and the cable missed his legs. Have you ever experienced anything like that? No, thankfully I never have, but I am aware of the video you speak of. And I think the wire came back and he had to jump a second time. That particular individual was very lucky. The person next to him, it was not paying as good of attention, was not as fortunate. And I believe had a leg injury or maybe even lost a leg. I'm not totally sure, but that does happen. The way they mitigate that the best they can is to count every landing on every wire. And when it hits about 100, they pull it aside and decommission that wire. And sometimes things happen, though, if the arresting gear engines just one deck below the flight deck are not set correctly, then the wire can break. Or if there's another malfunction, that can happen. But thankfully, no, despite five deployments and 700 carrier-arrested landings, most of mine were fairly benign. The F-35 that I fly now, the flight control system is common throughout the Navy and the Marines. And there's a mode on there. I think it's called J-PALS. And I think it's supposed to land on the carrier automatically. Is that is that a software that you guys had in your jets? Not in the F-18 while I was there. I think we started calling it Magic Carpet, which is like a, what, 12-letter acronym. And I won't sit here and try to tell you, but it's some sort of augmented guidance for blah, 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 carrier landing. Anyway, I think they've since shortened it to Precision approach landing pal or something along those lines. And apparently it makes it quite a bit easier to land on the carrier. And so did the heads up display when it first came around in the seventies and eighties. So I never had a chance to use it. I understand it makes flying around the ship much safer. And I suppose theoretically, if, well, I guess you wouldn't be in an F-35A able to do it, but if you, for whatever reason, happen to be in an F-35C, Justin, I don't know, maybe you could engage that and come down and land in an emergency without uh, a whole lot of training, but let's not promote uh, trying that. (laughs) Yeah, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. So the carrier, that really fascinates me. Can you talk a little bit more about carrier ops? Are you always sailing straight into the wind? And then have you ever been in austere conditions in a storm, that that kind of thing? The ship endeavors to sail into the wind to the maximum extent practical. The reasons it can't at times is because either A, there is no wind, in which case it has to make its own. And in doing so, if you've seen a picture of an aircraft carrier, you know where you're landing is about 10 degrees to the left of where the ship's direction of travel is. So there will always be a little bit of starboard crosswind if it's making its own wind. But also B is that if you are in congested waters, there could be traffic or international borders that prohibit you from going any further, and you may have to then reset. Certain aircraft like the S3 Viking used to be able to land with almost no wind or even downwind, and they would be able to do that, but not the F-18 or any of the stubbier winged aircraft. And generally speaking, the out at sea where there can be thunderstorms is also where the wind comes from. So yes, I have multiple times, unfortunately, flown around the ship in less than perfect weather conditions. And one time that comes to mind is a particular storm that was right over the ship in the Arabian Gulf in when I was operating over Iraq at the time. And I was coming down, there was lightning everywhere, and I just really wasn't aware of why I couldn't see the ship when I normally can. And the landing signal officers, which are pilots out on the flight deck helping us land each and every time, they made a 99 call. And 99 simply means, hey, everybody, listen up. And they said, turn on your taxi lights. And normally, as you know, Justin, taxi lights are these bright light headlights that 
basically help you see where you're going normally at a field, let's say, and you don't use them at the ship because you'd blind the landing signal officers. Well, they couldn't see us either. And so they asked us to turn on these bright white lights so that at least they could see something a little bit out there beyond just right before you go whizzing by. And so I reached down and turned it on. And of course, the drawback to that is that when you're in dense fog, which is what I ended up being in the storm, it was like this strange situation where it was stormy, but also foggy. It magnified all the water particles around me. And so I ended up sitting in this big bathtub of milk, essentially, as there was white light all around me. And my eyes had previously adjusted to the dark. And that's not what you want is bright white light. And so I'm coming down and generally speaking, they'll ask you to call the ball at about three quarters of a mile. Anyone who's seen Top Gun, the opening scene is familiar with that, although they didn't get the comms completely right. But hey, Hollywood has to take some liberties. At any rate, generally, they'll say your side number, let's say 402, three quarters of a mile, and then they'll tell you where you are, if left or right or up or down. So the call might sound something like 402, three quarters of a mile on glide slope, slightly right of course, call the ball. And if you see the ball, which is that meatball I referenced earlier, the landing reference system, then you say so. And you say something along the lines of 402 Hornet ball 5.3. And 402 is your side number. Hornet is the aircraft you're in. Ball means you see it. 5.2 is how much fuel you have in thousands of pounds. So 5,200 pounds. Well, in this case, right about the time I was getting there, I called Clara. Clara is the antonym of ball, meaning I don't see you or anything. And at that point, my friends, the landing signal officers said, paddles contact, meaning we see your white light coming through the fog. Keep going because we know that you are on the right glide slope based on where we see the light. And they also have a camera in the flight deck and they know that if you're left or right, they'll tell you. Well, then of course, at some point you start getting close enough, they want you to turn off the light. Now, The F-18 is pretty good for most things that you expect to use being on what you know, Justin, but I don't know if your listeners do as HOTAS, hands on throttle and stick. There's certain things you can do like a pianist who plays the piano. Every finger is involved with something. There's certain things you can do by just pushing a button with a certain finger. Well, the landing light is not one of those or the taxi light, I should say. So at that point, I had to, at a very tumultuous time in a very rigorous landing, take one hand off, I believe it was the throttle, look inside, which is never good when you're about to land, and find the light and turn it off, and then get back on the throttle and look back outside. Now, this in real life takes no more than two seconds and probably doesn't sound to the uninitiated as particularly harrowing, but I can tell you it is because in those two seconds, what transpires against you is meatball, lineup, and angle of attack. Everything is going to change. Your glide slope is no longer going to be perfect or at least getting towards there. Your left to right lineup will you generally start changing and so might your attitude if your aircraft is not trimmed correctly. So I had to reach back in quickly and get on the throttle, figure out where I was and what I was trending towards. Of course, at that point, the LSOs will tell you power or come right, uh, sorry, right for lineup or come left, whatever you need. And they have standardized calls for all that. And I, if I remember correctly, I did land on the first attempt, but I'm sure it wasn't pretty. And each landing is graded. And I think they were generous based on the conditions that night. So yeah, talking about, I guess, elaborating on the F-18, you've flown two different types. Which one did you enjoy flying more? I know the F-18 Super Hornet is pretty much a completely new aircraft. So can you go into that a little bit? 
I guess if you have any Air Force listeners, I, I think the parallel is a lot like the F-15 Eagle than the Strike Eagle. As I understand, the Strike Eagle is a little bit bigger. looks a lot the same, but it's got a slightly different mission. The Super Hornet it looks very much like the Hornet, including inside. They're virtually identical with some subtle differences. And they fly very similarly, but not exactly the same. And there's some systems differences as well. I enjoyed the Hornet the most simply because it was my first date, if you will. Uh, when I came out of flight school, I went to the F-18 and then ended up flying it almost nonstop for the next, oh, I guess, 10 years before I ended up flying the Super Hornet. And so the Super Hornet was fun, and there was aspects of it that I enjoyed, the fact that it was generally newer because they were just making them. And it was a little more forgiving around the ship with a larger wing and a little bit more lift, so you could come in a little bit more slowly. But it just wasn't what I was as used to. So for me, it it wasn't my favorite. Then later, I had an opportunity to fly F-16s. The Navy has 14 of them based in Fallon, Nevada, just an hour east of Reno. And I really enjoyed flying the F-16 because it was new and different. It's like, I guess, getting a new car after you've had a car that you've loved since college or something. But for me, I was never as comfortable in the F-16. I only ended up with 170 flight hours in it. And so compared to over 3,000 in the F-18, of course, I wasn't as comfortable. And and all we did in the F-16 was adversary or opposition forces. So we played the bad guy for the Top Gun students who were training and doing the good guy tactics. So our job was to die. And if we did our jobs well, and so did the other guys, that's what we did. But I enjoyed flying it. I just didn't really feel as comfortable, so I wouldn't call the F-16 my favorite in that in that case. Yeah, similar feeling. The F-16 is always going to be my first love because it was the realization of this huge dream that, that I had when I was a kid. But uh, I think after a couple of years, so it's taken me about two years to really get comfortable with the F-35. The first part of the curve is is pretty quick. You learn it pretty fast. And then making improvements, you know, that last 10% takes takes a long, long time. And I'm, I'm still working on that. Well, I can imagine. But as you know, too, Justin, just to say real quickly, professional pilots, a lot like any other profession, I presume, are always learners, life learners. And so even five years from now, if I reach back and connect with you, I would hope that you would tell me you're still learning because there's you've never learned it all, I don't think. Absolutely. That's, that's one of the awesome things I think about being a multi-role fighter pilot is there's always something to learn. I guess there's always a little bit of stress that you don't know something as well as you should. So I think it kind of takes that mental toughness to be able to handle that stress and then to also keep studying. And it drives you to keep studying because you want to get to that point, even though it's elusive and you may never reach it, but it drives you towards it. So I agree. So talking about the Navy F-16s, I found that out just a couple of years ago. I think most people probably don't realize that the Navy has F-16s. Can you talk a little bit about that? Certainly. Now, if you go back far enough and they're not the same aircraft, we actually had F-16Ns, N is in November, back in the late 80s. Top Gun had them at then Naval Air Station Miramar, now Marine Corps Air Station Miramar. And they flew the wings off them, which someone would maybe suggest wasn't a good thing. But in reality, they provided fantastic training for Top Gun students because they were such a capable aircraft. Unfortunately, because of the way they were used to train pilots, they their lifespan was used up fairly quickly. And so those went away. And then in the early 2000s, actually in the early 90s, there were F-16s being built. I understand about 28 of them 
for the Pakistani Air Force. And because of a dust up between Pakistan and India, as I understand it, the F-16s were decided they would not be sent there as punishment. And the State Department instead sent them directly from where they were built, I presume, in Fort Worth, Texas, straight to Davis-Mothin in Arizona. They went right from production into long-term storage. And after they languished there for a while, the Navy and the Air Force said, hey, if you're not going to do anything with these, can we have them? And of course, it was a bit more effort than just that. But to summarize, 14 went to the Air Force, 14 came to the Navy of the 28 originals. I think later, Pakistan said, hey, we'd like to have those now. And by then, the horse had left the barn, so that didn't happen. And as I understand it, the Air Force, I believe, flew theirs for a while and then turned them into drones. And the Navy is still flying ours. And they're Block 15s. They are not updated, or at least they weren't when I left. And they are probably among the oldest F-16s by capability flying in the world today. But they were still sufficiently capable. Could they have helped out to be a little bit more equipped? Certainly. And I believe my friends up in Fallon are still working on that. But we fly them as an adversary role. We don't do aerial refueling. We don't shoot the gun. We don't do air to surface or anything else. And they provide a very needed uh, capability for Top Gun and other students up in Fallon. Well, that's good news for the Navy and the Air Force. Uh, as far as turning them into drones, we were doing some missile testing over at uh, at Tyndall, and I taxied by one of the F-16 drones, and I don't think I can do it. I think it's uh, like being a cannibal to shoot down another <laughs> F-16. Yeah, especially since it was your first love. I can understand that. Our big gripe with that whole thing was we were always suffering for parts. And frankly, even if we'd had as many parts as we needed, we probably would still say we were suffering for parts. But at any rate, we used to lament in Fallon that the Air Force had the priority, and understandably, since they are the, the parent, if you will, of the F-16, that they had the priority for parts when they were putting them in aircraft that they were then blowing up. So we never enjoyed that particular thought, but that's just the way it went. I can see how that can be tough for the Navy, which is kind of a one-off system of only a, a few F-16s. Yes. Talking about Top Gun, everybody, I think everybody's seen the movie. Obviously, it's not going to be close to uh, the experience. So can you kind of talk about what the experience of Top Gun is like? Certainly. Well, just to make a comment on that, because I do a lot on my own show, Hollywood has to have some liberties before anyone will pay seven or 10 or whatever dollars it is now to come watch a movie. And in fact, if they made a movie about real Top Gun, it would be a complete flop because as you know, most of what we do is boring beyond beyond expression. And so nobody wants to see that. What do they want? They want drama and excitement and a love story and everything else. And then, so that's fine. My experiences with Top Gun when I was a brand new young pilot was that they were these gods that were the absolute best at what they did. And it was almost impossible to get there or do that. And it was amazing. And I thought, okay, that's cool. I guess I'll find something else to do. Well, as I made my way through my three-year tour as a young lieutenant, captain for you guys, then we had a Top Gun instructor show up at our squadron fresh from Top Gun. And he sat with me one day and he said, Jello, I think you could do this. And I thought, wait, really? And so he worked with me. He spoke to his staff back there where he just left. And I submitted an application and was accepted. And so in March of 2000, I reported to Top Gun as a student. And unlike the movie at that time, I knew I would stay provided I could 
successfully complete the course. And I struggled, Justin. I will completely come clean with you and tell you, and any instructor who was there will tell you, and even good friends of mine I still keep in touch with. I, I mean, I was never, I don't think, on the verge of being kicked out, but it did not come easy to me. I worked hard. I spent long hours there, and I busted my hump doing practice briefings and chair flying and anything I needed to do to meet the requirements because they don't just give that patch to anyone. And thankfully, I was able to complete the course, as did three other classmates who all stayed on the staff together. And we changed the color of our t-shirts from dark blue to light blue. We were accepted among the ranks of Top Gun instructors. And it was a phenomenal feeling. But I'll tell you, Justin, it pales in comparison to the feeling some eight months later when I finished a murder board, as it's called, which is when you give your lecture on the subject area of expertise that you will have, and you give it to all the other Top Gun instructors, and it has to be perfect. I mean, virtually perfect. And if it's not perfect, you have to know where your mistakes were and not have drawn big attention to it because that is a distraction. And it was when I finished my murder board and had a no kidding area of expertise where I thought, wow, I've made it. I am now the Navy's subject matter expert on this. And that's an incredible feeling. And I still look at my time at Top Gun as my high watermark for my 25 years of service. How is it changing from going through as a student to being an instructor and helping other students make it through the program? Well, and that's exactly what it is. The staff is expected to do anything, anytime for almost anyone, especially the students. And so you just, that, that is how it works there. There's, there's no doubt about it. The climate in that organization is such that it's all excellence in the pursuit of it and nothing else. Now, if you fall short and it happens, that's fine, but you have to identify the mistakes, figure out how to correct it and move on. And so nobody's ever perfect. No flight is perfect. But when you come back, you don't pull any punches. The Top Gun instructors, because they're out there flying right next to the students, they don't come back and gloss over their mistakes. They point them out first. They say, here's what I did. Here's what I was thinking. Here's why I made that mistake, if in fact they can determine that. And here's what I should have done. And next time we go out, this is what I'll do better. And we do the same thing for our students' mistakes. And after living in that environment, for months and years and flying to the caliber of flying that they do day after day, you very quickly get to the top of your game. And I would argue there's probably no better pilot in the Navy, and I presume it's the same for your weapon schools, than the one who leaves the weapon school or Top Gun and reports to the fleet having all that proficiency. And frankly, it's downhill from there because you just don't have the ability to maintain that level anymore. I would say it's a lot like the Patriots right after the February 3rd. They were probably as good as they'll ever be. And so I I just enjoyed that tour immensely. Was it difficult? Yes, absolutely. But we did whatever it took. And frankly, when you leave a command, a I should say, when you leave a squadron, and you can probably identify this, Justin, that deploys... When you get to a non-deploying squadron, you want to take a break. I mean, you've been wrung out a little bit. And so Top Gun is not like that. It is not a break. Some people actually look forward to going back to a seagoing squadron because you work so hard there weekends too. But that, that comes with the title the rest of your life that you can say, I was a Top Gun instructor. And guess what? It means something. Yeah. One of my favorite things about being in a fighter squadron is the way we handle feedback and how everybody owns their own mistake. And I think that only works in a system where everybody does that and are the first to call themselves out. And so it's 
it's really cool to be around a bunch of other people that are like that. I totally agree. And for your listeners who may work in an office or in other industries besides this, I would caution you to not roll in Monday morning to a meeting having listened to this episode and say, all right, here's how we're going to do this from now on, because I believe industry is different and the civilian sector is. And in some cases, maybe it's life or death, depending on where you work. But in most cases, it's about a bottom line and about relationships. And so I think you can apply some of this to your normal life and try to make yourself better. But I don't know that whole cultures can be changed to address this like we do uh, overnight. And so I would, I would caution anyone not to come in guns blazing. I think that's, the, that's great advice. So moving on a little bit into your mentality, I think continuing to evolve as a pilot is a big part of our job, getting better each day. Can you go into a few stories in combat or training that changed you as a pilot? Certainly. One of them was an episode that was captured actually uh, by the PBS crew in 2005 when they joined us on USS Nimitz and ultimately ended up putting out in 2008 a special called PBS Carrier. And there was a particular night off the coast of Australia where the ship, which again, if you recall how big I said it was earlier, that it was bobbing like a cork in these oceans. I mean, the deck from steady state was plus or minus 20 feet, so 40 feet of swing. And it's already difficult enough to land on a small ship with only 280 feet or so of landing area with the arresting cables that pull you to a stop. Well, it's even worse when you're bobbing up and down. And so we had, as documented on that particular series episode, a night where, for whatever reason, we decided to fly. And we went out and flew in what should have normally been an hour and 15 minute cycle. And by cycle, I simply mean that on the carrier, you don't just take off and land whenever you want, like in a normal field, you have periods of time where you are launching and then recovering aircraft. And then you have downtime in the middle where you're not launching or recovering. And those generally last anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half between launch and recovery cycles. Well, on our penultimate recovery of the night, there was still going to be one cycle left. It took us, we went out on an hour and 15 minute event and we spent another hour after we started coming down before everybody finally landed and they canceled the very last night event. And we couldn't land everybody in an efficient manner because the deck was moving so much. We had bolter after bolter or even wave off. And a bolter is simply when you intend to land and you miss all the wires. My particular experience that day was we flew that daytime and it was moving, but with the benefit of peripheral vision, you can see the ship and your peripheral horizon. And so you can feel like you know where you are situationally. In fact, in some cases, I never saw it, but other people said they saw the screws, the propellers, if you will, on the carrier come out of the water, which is terrifying. I'm glad I never saw it. Um, at night, you don't see that. All you see are the lights and the lights end up pulsating in different shapes. And I have a short cameo on that particular episode with the TV. After I landed, they came in and said, what was that like? And I took a piece of paper and I tried to move it up and down to say, well, it kind of looks like this because all you see are the lights of the landing area. And when they move up and down, it gives you vertigo and it's, it's really uncomfortable to say the least. And so I'd landed in the daytime, no problem. Went back out that night and I knew it would be sporty 
and you are sharing radio frequencies with other aircraft. So you hear bolters in front of you and wave offs and everything. And I, I said to myself, to your point earlier, Justin, okay, you can do this. And if you can't do it, it's okay. Come back around and try it again. And sure enough, I came down on my first attempt. And what happens is if the ship is moving down and you're coming in just about to land, well, the wires are going away from you. And so the LSOs, landing signal officers, they might tell you easy with it, which is the calm brevity term we use, meaning take a little throttle off, but they don't want you to pull it to idle. I mean, they just want you to take a little off and see if you can chase the deck down, but they don't want you to chase it too much. Conversely, if you're coming in, everything's looking good, but the back of the ship is coming up. It's just like you going low. And so they need to have you add some power because they don't want you hitting the back of the ship. The airplane never wins in that battle. And so on the first one, I came down and probably through some of my own fault, but certainly the circumstances as well, I just ended up in a situation where I couldn't land. In fact, I didn't touch, my wheels didn't touch down on the ship at all. I missed the entire ship. So I went around and got back in the conga line, as we call it, with everyone else. And the next time I came down, I thankfully touched the ship, but my hook was too far past the wires. So I bolted. And the third time coming down, Justin, I said to myself, okay, this is getting old and I'm getting scared. <laughs> and so let's see if I can't make this happen. And that's always a dangerous thing at the ship because you don't want to make a big play because you'll surprise the LSOs and they can, may not be able to save you in time. So you still have to be predictable and make small corrections. But I thought, all right, I need to do this. And as I was crossing the wires, either I became overpowered or the wires were going down with the ship and it looked like I was going to bolter again. And I ended up doing a very quick slap, if you will, on the on the control stick to just, it wasn't going to like make the aircraft fly up, which it would normally do when you pull back on an aircraft stick. But what it did was it just kind of rotated the aircraft about its center of aerodynamic pressure, which raised the nose a little bit, but more importantly, dropped the hook. And I was able to grab the fourth wire right at the last second. It pulled me to a halt. And as I came to a stop, I thought, Justin, okay, thank God that odyssey is over. But I was wrong because, number one, the, the deck was slippery at that point in deployment. We have this non-skid, a lot like the liner you put in the bed of pickup trucks. And it gets wore off through repeated use and impacts from different machinery and equipment. And so the deck was very slippery. With all that movement, it was difficult to control the aircraft finally. And then the second thing was, as I was moving to my position, and I assume you understand this too as a pilot, but for the listener, we don't drive airplanes on the ground like you drive a car. It's not with your hands, it's with your feet. And your legs have to move the nose wheel steering and your feet have to apply the brakes, just like the brake pedal in your car. Well, at that point, Justin, all that adrenaline, which was in my system, decided it needed to come out now. And it decided to come out through my legs and they started shaking almost uncontrollably. And it wasn't that I was fearful. It was just that this adrenaline needed to go. And that's how it went out by burning itself in muscle. And your legs are your, your quads, you know, are your biggest muscles. And so I had a difficult time just even taxiing to stop. Uh, once I finally did, of course, I was glad to be on the deck, said thank you to the crew chief, as you call it. We call it a plane captain. And I went below into our squadron ready room and I walked in in the direction of the fair the chairs facing the TV, because of course all the pilots not flying were watching danger television, as we call it. And they all started clapping. <laughs> Welcome back, Jello. And I was just at that point relieved and happy to be alive. And that's when PBS came and shoved a camera in my face and asked me to say something coherent. And I hope I was, but that was one particular night that shaped me because I realized just how dangerous it is. And I just 
was glad to be done with it. And, you know, we went out, I don't know if we went out the next night, but we've been out since and you keep doing it, but it certainly is a lesson you take with you the rest of your career. I think you've convinced me that Air Force was the right choice for myself. <laughs> you might be onto something there. <laughs> so stepping away from being a pilot in the Air Force, as I'm sure it is in the Navy, we are not only leaders in the sky, but we're leaders on the ground as well in our squadrons and in the ships. You know, it's been tossed around for the Air Force to have warrant officers where you're just an expert in, in flying, but we're not doing that yet. So being a leader and being a senior leader in the Navy, what are some lessons learned you had over the years? Well, I certainly agree with you on that, Justin. As far as being a leader on the ground is probably even more important because people won't follow you. If they don't follow you on the ground, they're not going to follow you in the air. So to me, leadership is about authenticity and about communication and about not asking people to do something you're not willing to do. And if something is BS, you tell them it's BS. If someone's telling you, you have to do it, then you have to put that aside and say, look, this is what we have to do. And you can't commiserate with them and say, this is BS in that situation. You just do it. And because that's the military and life is at stake in some cases. For me, I unfortunately was never given an opportunity to command a squadron. So my leadership was somewhat limited, but I was an operations officer for an entire aircraft carrier, air wing and rub elbows quite frequently with the ship's operations officer. And I remember one particular night we were making decisions on something and he got on his little brick, as he called it, his walkie-talkie. And he called up to the navigator and he said, hey, why don't you turn and go put the ship over here? And it had to do with some flying that he and I were discussing for the following day. And a moment later, I felt the ship begin to heal. And I thought, did I just do that? And he kind of looked at me like, yeah, what's wrong with you? And I was reminded in that moment that Leadership has consequences on people. I mean, the whole 5,500 person ship was now turning together. Some, in some cases, to be fair, maybe not that they wanted to, but that's where they were going. And I think leadership is like that. I think it's about taking people where they want to go, ideally, but where they need to go, even if they are not necessarily bought in, because that is what it's about. It's about accomplishing the mission and doing what you're sent to do. And if you're on an aircraft carrier, well, then maybe that's operating in the correct location to do the flying that you need to do. If it's in your office, it might be whatever your company or industry dictates to you is the most important thing that you need to do. Maybe it's not national defense, but it's probably just as important in its own realm. And so I think you need to be mindful of how you act and the decisions you make as a leader impact those who are around you and especially follow you. I know you're saying that not a lot of our experience kind of being in the military because it is life and death can relate to the business world, but do you think any of it can relate? Oh, absolutely. I just mean by that, that a lot of people when they leave the military have to deprogram themselves a little bit, that the rest of the civilian sector is not ready for, and I'll pick on the Marines because they're usually a little bit more <laughs> oh, than the rest of us. Uh, you know, they'll come out with their buzz cut still a year later and, uh, rah, 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 you know, we got to get this done. You got to do that. And they're barking orders and not everybody responds well to that. On the other hand, what I think people can appreciate about a military person moving on to a second career is that these are people who are comfortable in diverse groups because military takes people from everywhere, men and women, all different colors, all different backgrounds, everything. And we are used to dealing with 
austere conditions, whether it be the environment or the amount of time that we have or the budget. And we're used to accomplishing something. And so I think if you can take a little bit of the grunt out of it, if you will, and say, look, I can still do all these things. I just don't need to do it all at once, perhaps, or I need to not break a bunch of dishes doing it. Then I think that can be a value to almost any profession out there. And certainly the ones that we're familiar with, whether it's leadership or in my case, aviation now as a second career in the airlines, I know how to fly an airplane, which is relatively easy, frankly. But more importantly, I know how to handle an emergency. And now it's not just me in the airplane. It's me and our crew of six and maybe 200 passengers. And so you need to not be afraid. Well, or I should say, being afraid is fine. You need to know how to handle fear and make decisions. And you need to be the type of person that says, all right, it's probably better to be decisive and then flex from there than being indecisive. Because I think indecision can be deadly too. So I think there are some parallels there. And people just need to remember that the civilian sector is not the military. And some have a hard time letting go of that. Right. And I think we're even dealing with that here in the Air Force. I know there's a leadership paper going around of coaching versus evaluating and saying that we've spent too much time evaluating and people are our number one asset. And instead of constantly cutting them down, you kind of have to build them up, especially pilots, people in high performance fields, they're working as hard as they can. So you need to find a way to do more praising without making it over the top. Well, there needs to be a balance. It's a lot like raising children. I mean, there has to be some correction, but you actually have to celebrate when they do things right too and and give people encouragement. It comes back to what we talked about at the beginning. But yeah, I think you see just a quick parallel there, Justin. I think you see companies like Southwest Airlines and Chick-fil-A that say, if you take care of your people, they'll take care of the customer. And so if the Air Force is starting to reevaluate that, that's great. And I know it's difficult now for the Air Force as it is for the Navy because a lot of pilots are saying, you know, I'm done with the deployments. I'm done with the budget cuts and government that can't figure out how to stay open long enough for us to do what we need to do. So the economy's doing well. I'm going to move on and go do something else. And so I'm glad to hear that. That's encouraging. So I want to save a little bit of time to talk about your podcast, the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Can you talk a little bit about who it's for and what it is? Absolutely. And Justin, I know you can identify with this because I'm sure you get it too. Maybe not so much around where you live because people are used to military, but when I go home and visit family or go somewhere else and visit friends, or I used to now that I'm out, they would always, when they found out what I did, just be amazed as if we were some thing you'd only see on the news or on movies, but never really get to see and touch in real life. And so they would always want to know about ejection seats or aerial refueling or landing on a carrier, just like we've talked about today. And I always enjoyed sharing it because, yeah, I guess it's an ego boost, but also it's just a way to connect with people and, and have a moment because what else is life about if it's not about relationships? And and so I enjoyed sharing it with people. And as I neared retirement in late 2016, I realized that I enjoyed doing that. And I also realized there's a lot of people out there that would like to know more. And certainly there are hundreds of YouTube channels and TV shows and everything else about military aviation, but I noticed there was not a podcast. And I had had a positive experience being on another podcast, much like I'm being on yours now. Thank you. And the host and I ended up becoming friends. And I said, you know, I wonder if this would work. And he said, oh my goodness, I would listen to it. And the closer I became to retiring, the more work I put into it. 
And I launched on January 1st, 2018, as you said, the Fighter Pilot Podcast. And our tagline is the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. And we do. We talk about all those things. And the audience is twofold. Number one, it is the men and women out there who want to know about it. Maybe they wanted to be a pilot once and life got in the way or they didn't have the eyes or something else. And number two, the young man or woman who aspires to be a pilot. And we put out information that they enjoy. And what I didn't expect, Justin, is that a lot of my peers listen. And they tell me, hey, Joe, I like the show. And I really expected a lot more ribbing from them. But they, they do. They listen. And I have older pilots that listen and they say it brings them back. I have current pilots that listen just because they want to see if I'm going to say something stupid or they just want to hear about it, you know. And I've really, really been heartened by the response. And in fact, our show is growing and we are adding team members and really just developing the show into much different avenues and other ways that we can uh, share this world with people. So what are some of your favorite episodes? I listened to your fourth versus fifth gen discussion with your co-host. Are there any favorite episodes of yours that stand out? That was a good one. I really liked the Top Gun versus Top Gun episode that we did, including with the correct spelling for each. I really enjoyed the episode we did on the Desert Storm MIG kill with my friend Mongo because we replayed the audio and everybody loved that. And the Real Viper, which was with a gentleman who had had a Vietnam MIG kill as well as he was the Navy's point of contact when they filmed the first Top Gun. That was a fun one as well. They've all been endearing to me in different ways because you spend so much energy on them and they're a lot like your children. You, you, you love them and maybe at times you love some more than others, but for the most part, I've really enjoyed them all, but those are some of my tops. So where can people find it? You can find it just about anywhere podcasts are available. And by that, I mean on the Apple podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify. Gosh, I can't even keep track of them all these days, but just about anywhere you can find a podcast, you can find the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Also, you can go to fighterpilotpodcast.com or you can go to YouTube and look up the Fighter Pilot Podcast. And we have a channel there that's pretty vibrant. Awesome, Jello. Well, I really appreciate you spending time to talk with me. Whether you know it or not, you're somewhat of a mentor to me. And I look forward to seeing where you go and where the Fighter Pilot Podcast goes. And I'll, I'll tune in. Well, I appreciate that, Justin. If I can be of any further assistance as you continue on your podcasting journey, please be sure to let me know. And as we talked about before rolling tape, maybe we can repay the favor and have you come on our show and talk about some of the different aircraft. We are doing a series right now on different aircraft where each episode we ask the same eight questions no matter what our guest flew. Awesome. I'd, I'd love to do it. Great. Well, take care, Jello. Thanks for having me on the show. It's been a lot of fun, Justin. Thanks for listening. This has been the Professionals Playbook. I'm Justin Lee. If you like what you heard, one, writing a review, and two, sharing your favorite episode on social media will help out a lot. If you want to ask me a question, my email is justin at professionalsplaybook.com. I'll see you guys in two weeks.